so Judges chapter 9, and we're actually going to start back in chapter 8 just so we can help Spencer get caught up to where we are. We can go to verse 30 of chapter 8. I'm old. <laughs> verse 30 of chapter 8, and we'll kind of roll on into chapter 9 from here, but it's important to kind of get our bearings as to what's going on. This is an incredibly significant chapter we're going to study tonight. Um, and I've shared before, I don't always know this going into it. I, I sometimes will hit it cold the week before. I've never studied Judges chapter 9 before this past week. And um, I've read through it, you know, in, in passing through and in, in reading through the Bible, but never sat down and really studied it through. And it is a treasure trove of, of great things. And it's an important chapter. It's, important cha- it's an important chapter both historically, but also prophetically and practically. And we're going to see all of that tonight. And uh, so, you know, before I even start, let's just pray. Father, I want to ask you to give us clear thinking and, and sharpen our spirits, Father, tonight by your word. And help us to see all that you want us to see. And Lord, those things that maybe, if it just becomes overwhelming, would you just tuck some of these things away in our minds so that later and through the week it will come back up as we read over this and, and consider these things and pray about it. Father, we, we want to feast on your word. We do not want to be among those who the prophet Amos said would, would experience a famine of the word. We don't want to be those who are, who are so used to, to milk that when the meat is served up, we can't handle it. We, Father, want to feast on the meat of your word. We need the gentleness of the milk of your word and we want the sweetness, Father, of the honey. We want it all. And we ask for it all. And Father, I only ask this boldly because I know it pleases you because you have magnified your word above all your name. And so tonight as we approach Judges chapter 9 in this story of Abimelech and the people of Israel, I pray that we would learn, we would grow, and we would personally, Father, be impacted by the things we're about to hear and see. And send us out of here full, Father, and thankful that we came in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in verse 30, it says, Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah of the Abiezrites. And then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bereave their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. The Hebrew scriptures often mention sinful activity without judging it. You find yourself reading through and someone will do something and there will be no statement of whether it's right or wrong. It's just a statement that it happened. It is what it is. We read here that Gideon, after following the Lord, after having a great victory, after setting up that golden ephod, there in Oprah he himself 
fell to it. It became a snare to him. And after all that, he began to marry and marry and marry and marry. Now, we don't know how many times he got married, how many wives he actually had, but we know he had 70 sons. So we know there had to be several. But that wasn't enough for Gideon. He went out and got himself a concubine living over there in Shechem. Probably set her up with a nice little apartment so he could go visit her when the rest of his wives just weren't doing it for him. It's amazing to me. And and we read these things, and this is what often causes people consternation in reading the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. They read things like this and say, well, was God just okay with that? Because there's nothing in here that states emphatically Gideon was wrong. Gideon was a sinner. Gideon shouldn't have done this. In fact, it's because of stories like Gideon's and Solomon's, David's, other major players, major people, major characters in the Hebrew Scriptures that Joseph Smith determined polygamy was the right thing for Mormonism back in the day. And so I read this and and I wonder about it. If you keep your finger there and flip over to Matthew chapter 19, you get Jesus' take on the whole issue of wives, multiple wives, concubines, what it's supposed to be like. Matthew chapter 19, in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And remember, they believed that it was. They believed Moses gave them that, right? They believed that they could say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she was gone. And the only reason the man had to have was he just was tired of her. He didn't like her anymore. They were trying to catch Jesus because they saw, they read that Moses gave them the right to divorce in the Old Testament law. They present this to him, and he answered, verse 4, and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And I believe, by the way, that in this statement, the Lord even sanctifies marriage outside of Christ, outside of faith. Any man, any woman who are joined together... Before the Lord, in holy matrimony, in marriage, that marriage is bound before the Lord. That is a one woman, one man for one life proposition. And whether or not they believe in God, the marriage before God is considered one flesh. It's interesting, Jesus goes all the way back in saying this goes all the way back to the beginning he doesn't go back to the Mosaic law he doesn't argue Moses with them he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and he points out Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that man and woman were made for each other one man one husband one wife one life in Christ is the ideal one husband one wife one life in Christ And again, you might ask, going back to Judges, why is it then that we see so many examples of polygamy and adultery in the Hebrew Scriptures and nothing is said about it? Well, I would tell you that something is said about it. Because when we read on, what ends up happening and what we have in the Older Testament in these Scriptures, we have the picture of the activity of sin and then we get to see full-fledged the fallout of that sin. 
We don't hear the Lord come before Gideon here and say, you're wrong to do this. You shouldn't have all those wives. You especially don't need to have that concubine. We don't hear that at all. But we do see the fallout in Gideon's family, and it's tragic. Gideon dies at a ripe old age. I like the phrase. In Hebrew, it's tov sebah. Tov sebah literally means he died with a good gray head. He had had plenty of years. He lived them out well. And he had 70 wives and a concubine. And he had Abimelech, this son who we will see more of in chapter 9. But the fallout sends shockwaves through Gideon's family. Not unlike a tsunami. Tsunami doesn't just happen on its own. It begins with an earthquake out in the middle of the ocean that nobody sees. Nobody experiences on land. You wouldn't even know that it happened. But the ripple effect begins and the waves get bigger and bigger and bigger until they hit land and they wipe people out as in the tsunami we saw just a couple years back. And that's what sin does. Sin always kills. It doesn't always kill immediately, but it always kills. It always wipes out. It always hits home. And Abimelech is Gideon's legacy. Abimelech is the fallout of Gideon's sin decision. And so though we don't have God the Father or Jesus the Son showing up saying, Gideon, you're wrong, you're a sinner, this is not correct, what we do have is the fallout of that decision. And we see it very clearly, very plainly in chapter 9. Now we're going to follow a four-part outline for chapter 9 tonight. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you and you can, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down and just follow this through. The first six verses, verses 1 through 6, the conspiracy of Abimelech. The conspiracy of Abimelech. Verses 7 through 21, we will read of the curse of Jotham and that is fascinating. In fact, that's the best part of the whole study tonight. The curse of Jotham. Verses 7 through 21. Then verses 22 through 49, we will read of the conflict of Shechem. Not the man Shechem, he was killed way back in Genesis, but the town Shechem, which is still there. The conflict of Shechem, verses 22 through 49. And finally, the chapter ends with the crushing of Abimelech, verses 50 through 57. So one more time, the conspiracy of Abimelech, the curse of Jotham, the conflict of Shechem, and the crushing of Abimelech. And you can use that to follow through as we go. Number one, the conspiracy of Abimelech. Verse 1, Judges chapter 9. So Abimelech, the son of Jerubel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, literally his mother's brothers. Remember, his mother's the concubine, so he is half Jewish through Gideon and half Shechemite through his mother. So he goes to his mother's brothers and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jerubael, that is Gideon, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? And also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. Better the devil you know. You know? <laughs> I mean, this guy, it's better to have one guy who at least is connected to us as a half-brother than to have these 70 Jewish you know, people, other sons of Gideon, ruling over this. Let's follow Abimelech. Let's, let's throw our hat in with him. He's our relative. So verse 4 tells us that they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Berith. Baal Berith. It's another form of Baal. Berith literally means covenant. 
So here it's Baal of the Covenant. Lord of the Covenant. And I thought about that. That's interesting because our God is the Lord of the Covenant. You know, Jehovah made the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Isaac and Jacob, a covenant with Moses. He will later make a covenant with David, a covenant with the people of Israel for the land. Our God is a God of covenants. But Satan is a God, is a God with a small g of counterfeit covenants. And it's very interesting to me because lo and behold, get over to Revelation chapter 6 through 19 enter into that study of the tribulation read Daniel chapter 9 and what is it that Antichrist does with Israel but set up a covenant Antichrist becomes Baal Barith in essence he becomes a lord of the covenant making a seven year covenant with Israel that he will violate and break three and a half years in why is that significant? hold on and you'll see verse 5 says Verse 4 says, They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Barith, Lord of the Covenant, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. And that's never a good idea, because worthless and reckless fellows may follow you for a while, but eventually they're going to be worthless and reckless to you. And then he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left. For he hid himself. The Shechemites were not Jews. And again, Abimelech was himself a half-Jew. So he appeals to his non-Jewish brothers, the Shechemites, gathers them together, goes up against all of his other half-brothers. 69 of them, one of them escapes. Little Jotham gets out of there. 69 of them, and with the help of the Shechemites, he puts them to one stone. What does that phrase mean, on one stone? It means he beheaded them one at a time. Chopped off their heads one by one, a practice that we still see go on in the Middle East today. You know, there was once a mother who gave birth, and the child that she gave birth to had, well, multiple birth effects. It didn't have any legs, it didn't have any arms, it didn't have any bodies, it was just a little a head. And so they, they took this head and they, mother and father, put it up on the mantle and you know, dusted him off from time to time. And they loved him, but that poor little head just sat up there, day in and day out. And one day an angel showed up and said, You've been such a good little head. Is there anything that, that you would like? And the head said, Oh, if only I could if only I could have some arms, you know, shoulders and arms, so that I could feed myself and, and even kind of move around the house, that'd be great. Poof. He had shoulders and arms. It's great. And then the angel came uh, a few weeks later and said, you're still just, you're you're doing such a a great job in life here. Is there anything else you want? He said, well, I I would just love to have a body, you know. I mean, I don't need legs. I'm not going to ask for somebody. Just just a body so I have, you know, head, arms, and body. And I can, you know, more more of a a whole person. And and so the angel says, great, poof. And and he had a body. I had arms, body. Well, some time went by and the angel came back again and said, you know, you you continue just to be such a a humble guy. Is there anything else you want? He said, oh, I I would just love some legs. Poof, he had legs. He was so excited, he jumped up, ran through the living room, out the front door, out into the street, shouting and screaming, and he got hit by a car and was killed. Of course, the moral of the story is stop while you're ahead. (laughs) Yeah, that actually was right here. Tell the head joke. Stop while you're ahead. You see, because what's happening here is Abimelech is just trying to get ahead. 
really is. It is ambition that's driving Abimelech. It's ambition. He wants to be the lead guy. And he doesn't care who he has to step on to get there. He doesn't care who he has to crush on the ladder up to success. Even his own family, he doesn't care if he has to take out a few heads along the way. Abimelech is a man of great ambition. And he kills 69 of his own brothers. Jotham escapes. Verse 6, it says, All the men of Shechem and all of Beth Milo, that is the house of Milo, assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. Now this is interesting, because remember, Abimelech, we said last week, Abimelech means son of a king. Son of the king. Back in chapter 8, remember the people wanted to make Gideon a king? He said, no, no, I will not be a king, and none of my children will be your king. The Lord will be your king. And we go, all right, Gideon. Amen. Focus on the Lord. Let the Lord be the king. Way to go, Gideon. But here, the son of Gideon's concubine is interestingly named son of the king. Had Gideon, by this point in his life, begun to think of himself as a king, as a ruler? This, by the way, is the only king mentioned in the book of Judges. This is the only judge who tries to take on the title of king for himself. Wait, wait, are you telling me that Abimelech is a judge? We'll answer that in just a few minutes. He's a false judge. He is set up as a judge. He rules in Israel for three years as a king. The Shechemites, they raise him up. They call him king. But Judges 17 verse 6 tells us the theme verse of this book in those days there was no king in Israel every man did what was right in his own eyes and this remains true for this so-called king of Abimelech is a usurper a thief of the throne he is a false ruler in Shechem and Abimelech is a picture in type of another false king who will impose his rule not just in Shechem not just in Beth Milo not just over Israel but globally in the last days and I am talking about Antichrist and that's why it's fascinating to me that Baal Barith is the God that's mentioned here Lord of the Covenant because in Abimelech we see a dramatic picture of Antichrist in the way he thinks in the way he acts in the things he does now I believe and I shared this when we studied Revelation I believe personally that Antichrist not only will he be a man and Revelation is very clear that's what the whole 666 is about John says this is wisdom. You can figure out what the 666 means. It's the number of a man. In other words, Antichrist is not some ghostly character. He will be a man. An actual human being. An actual ruler. But along with that, I absolutely believe for various reasons, and I can tell you these later. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But the spirit of Antichrist, I believe, has existed a long time. And has inserted himself in different people throughout the ages. People like Hitler are going back a bit further. People like uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, a horrible, bloodthirsty man. People like Caesar Nero, who I believe was insane with the possession of the spirit of Antichrist. And if you're curious about that, pick up the Revelation series. You'll hear more about it or you can ask me about it afterward tonight. But the spirit of Antichrist, John says in, in 1 John, he says, Hey, behold, many Antichrists have already come. 
there have been many antichrists on the scene. And he said, hey, you, know, you want to know who the spirit of antichrist is? The spirit of antichrist is anyone who does not believe or does not confess Jesus as come in the flesh. That's the spirit of antichrist. The one who would deny or be against Christ Jesus. And speaking of Antichrist, in the time of the tribulation, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes, Let no one in any way deceive you. For the tribulation, he's saying, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who is that? Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Turn over to Daniel chapter 11. Many of you ladies know exactly how to get there. Spending some time there earlier this year. Daniel chapter 11. And verse 36. Keep Abimelech in the back of your mind here because he is a picture, a portrait in type of this very character that we're talking about, Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who displayed himself in various ways throughout history. It tells us, verse 36 of Daniel 11, that the king, the king, the king at that time, the false king, will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, that is, Yahweh. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, which, by the way, indicates Antichrist may be, like Hitler before him, a half-Jew. Because this phrase, God of his fathers is a Jewish, a very Jewish phrase. And it says Antichrist will show no regard for the God of his fathers or the gods of his fathers. That word gods is singular, God. If your translation says it plural, it's, it's singular. Interesting, he may have Jewish blood actually flowing in his veins. It says he will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, which indicates Antichrist may also be homosexual. If, if nothing else, he has no interest whatsoever in the opposite sex. So driven is he in his desire for world domination. But it's possible here that the reason he doesn't desire women is because he is also homosexual. It's interesting. He will prosper. Well, I'm sorry, wait a minute. Where are we? No, we're really show regard for any other God. He will magnify himself above them all. And he will honor a God of fortresses, literally a God of weapons this Antichrist, a God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And there are many Bible scholars who believe this is pointing out how Antichrist is going to build up his arsenal of weaponry, his weapons of mass destruction. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. He's going to divide up the land of Israel, which no man has the right to do. Now for all these interesting characteristics, these possibilities as to the person of Antichrist, the bottom line is Antichrist will be a false king. He will be a usurper. And there is a stunning contrast to Jesus Christ. 
If you've studied Revelation with me, you've heard some of this, I want to look at this again. The contrast between Antichrist and Jesus Christ is obvious in Scripture. Antichrist will do as he pleases, Daniel tells us. Jesus Christ prayed, Luke 22:42, Not my will, but yours be done. Antichrist will exalt himself. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Antichrist will speak monstrous things against God. Jesus Christ said, The words I say to you, I don't even speak on my own, but the Father abiding me does his works. Jesus completely put himself in the authority of God, speaking for, speaking the words of God, John 14, verse 10. Antichrist will be into his own prosperity, Abimelech was. In fact, all these things could very well describe Abimelech. He will be into his own prosperity. Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he wasn't just poor through his death on the cross, by the way, he was a homeless man. We fail to recognize that or consider that sometimes that Jesus Christ had no home. He said the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have nests in which to rest and sleep at night. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus purposefully went without, during his ministry years, the last three of his life, three years of his life, went without a home. And just was a vagabond. He gave up everything, including a lot of the creature comforts that you and I enjoy. He became poor that we might become rich. Antichrist will not regard the God of his fathers. As I said before, he may have Jewish blood in his veins. Jesus Christ regarded the God of his fathers, saying the following, If you knew me, you would know my Father also. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. As he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 19 and 28 and 29 of that same chapter, John chapter 8. Jesus was always about the things of the Father. He didn't disregard the gods of his, the God of his fathers. He worshipped, followed, he gave us example how to follow his own father, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Antichrist will not desire women as we've already seen. Jesus Christ said the following, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Matthew 19 verses 4 through 5. While Antichrist will not regard or have any desire for women, Jesus Christ on the other hand had incredible love for and compassion for women. The first woman that he revealed that he was Messiah to was a woman. The first person to see him after his resurrection was a woman. He spoke with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, to the shock of his followers. He forgave the woman caught in adultery when all others were ready to stone her. Because Jesus does regard men and women. And the Bible tells us wonderfully in Galatians 3.28, tells us that in Jesus Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus, the way he intended it to be. Antichrist will set himself up as God. Jesus Christ said, I am the Alpha 
and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Revelation 22.13. So the contrast between these two is obvious and it's stunning. And as we read through scriptures, every time someone pops up that has these characteristics of Antichrist, there is more that we can learn about anyone, about those who would set themselves against or in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 7, going on, says, Now when they told Jotham... He went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim. Jotham. Jotham, this young man, number 70 of the sons of Gideon, who got away, apparently didn't realize that all 69 of his brothers now lay dead and beheaded. And so when he finds out, he goes up to the top of Mount Gerizim. You remember Mount Gerizim? It's the Mount of Blessing. Mount Gerizim there in Israel across from Mount Ebal and the people went to the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing and they shouted out those blessings and cursings Moses read them and the people would shout Amen if they were blessings and they'd shout Amen if they were cursings and they went through all that well he goes up to the top of this mountain 800 feet in elevation and it, it, it creates kind of a natural amphitheater to where if you stand on the top of that mountain and speak down you can be heard very well in the valley below and the city that is in the valley below Gerizim Mount Gerizim is Shechem so up Mount Gerizim goes Jotham this son of Gideon and he declares from the top of Mount Gerizim the first parable given in the Bible that's significant Remember we've talked about the principle of first mention. The first time something is mentioned in the Bible, the first time something happens in the Bible, often lays a pattern for things that happen after the fact. Well, this is the very first parable here in Judges chapter 9, verses 7 through 21. We will call it the curse of Jotham. Verse 7. They told Jotham, he went up, stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem. That God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? And in the trees they said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go wave over the good trees? And then the trees said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, The bramble, You come, reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth... You are anointing me as king over you. Come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity, Jotham says, in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved... For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, even the Shechemites, the non-Jewish people. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. Well, if you have then dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, and his house to this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, 
Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. And Jotham escaped and fled and he went to have a beer. No, he went to beer. And he remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. What an amazing parable. And it's a prophecy. And by the way, as we'll see in the latter part of this chapter, it comes true exactly as Jotham says. He prophesies a wonderful and a challenging truth. Now, there are a couple things I want to pause and think through in this parable. Like I said, this is rich and, and it's, it's thick with things. I'm going to throw there are a lot of verses up here. That's because several are going to come at you like lightning. And you're going to have to go back and read them on your own if you choose to do so. Study them a little bit more and, and draw some more out of this. But a couple things to think through. If you want to jot this down, under the curse of the parable of Jotham, number one, the most deserving, the most deserving are the least desirous of rule. Those who are most deserving of being king, of of ruling, are the ones who want it the least. As we see with these trees, the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, they deserve it in in terms of this parable. Trees that give good fruit or good oil or good wine. These trees, these are good, helpful, giving trees. They deserve the opportunity to lead all the other trees, is what Jotham is saying. But the bramble does nothing but take. It sucks up life out of the ground as a weed. It burns furiously across the landscape. The most deserving are the least desirous of rule. Remember what Paul said. It's a great quality test for those who would be in church leadership of any kind. We read this verse last week. 2 Corinthians 1.24 Paul says, Not that we lord it over your faith. We are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. He says, We're not here to be your boss. Or your Lord, that's Jesus. Our job is to walk alongside you for your joy. And that's what we're about here at the bridge, here in in Christianity. That's the idea. And I shared last week and I will share again. Don't ever allow yourself to come under the rule or authority of a man who claims to have all the answers. You are under the authority of Jesus Christ, not the authority of a human being. Whether it be a shepherd or a pastor or an elder of a church... The only authority they have is to walk alongside for your joy and and you for their joy as we go on this journey together. Jesus said in Mark 10.43, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now think about these trees that Jotham used in his parable. All the trees giving out that olive oil. In fact, the oil that's made for the temple lampstand. That pure oil. And fig trees, they bear fruit. Some of the best fruit that's in Israel are the figs there. If you go to Israel, and I'm hoping you all will, I'm guessing you all will, or you're just going to get sick of me saying it, they have figs there that are tastier than anywhere else in the world. Fig trees that bear fruit, olive trees that give oil, and vines that yield wine. And all three of these trees have give something or yield something that describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Oil, fruit, and wine. Oil that, that brings light and that brings anointing. Fruit as in the fruit of the Spirit and wine, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And gain even the way of the Spirit of God is not to usurp or impose Himself upon people. This is something stunning to me about God the Father. Ruler of the universe 
with the greatness and power to do whatever he wants, he could squash us like little bugs, and yet he will not impose himself on our faith. Unless we ask. Unless we say, Father, impose. Please impose. And I say that a lot. Impose. Because without your imposition, I'm a mess. I want you to control. I want you to lead. But he won't if we don't ask. He leaves the free choice up to you and up to me. The Bible says, Jesus says, John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26, He will testify about me, Jesus says. John 16, 14, He will glorify me. He will take up mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit never, never exalts Himself. We've said this in here before, that spirit-led, spirit-filled people are more interested in talking about Jesus than they are about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit doesn't exalt Himself. He exalts the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's how you know someone is truly spirit-filled is if they're talking about Jesus. Because that's part of the role of the Spirit is to help people remember the words of Jesus and think about Jesus and share Jesus. And the more Jesus is on your mind, gain the more Spirit-filled you are because the Spirit speaks Jesus to you and to me. The bramble, however, by contrast, again, is a consuming weed. And so the second thing to note, first was the most deserving or the least desirous. The second is the least helpful are often the most hungry. The least helpful are often the most hungry, especially when it comes to ruling. And the bramble takes up space. It spreads out. It takes up ground. It soaks up water. It burns up fast. And that's who Jotham is saying Abimelech is. He's a bramble. And he's going to burn. And he's going to burn you. And if you're in a relationship with him, men of Shechem, you're going to get burned. And Abimelech, in your behavior, in your attitude, you are going to get burned. And this is amazingly prophetic regarding Abimelech and Shechem. But listen to this. And here's where you're going to have to go back and do some of your own study. Fantastically, this first parable in the Bible is not just prophetic in the short term. It is prophetic in the long term. For in this parable, the three trees are prophetically symbolic of Israel itself and Israel's entire history. You can see it laid out here. Now we don't have time to get real deep, but again, please go back, read some of these verses, study them on your own, but consider this tonight. The vine speaks of the spiritual privileges of Israel. The vine speaks of Israel's spiritual privileges. I will read this to you real quickly here. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Where the Lord compares Israel to the vine. He says, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds 
to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. And it's fascinating to me, and we'll see this, Jesus told this exact parable, applying it again to Israel a second time. The vine speaks of the spiritual privileges of Israel. They were privileged by God spiritually to be His people, to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring the Word into the world and to protect the Word across time, which they have continued to do very well, I might add. But to be those who spoke of, who were the the people who heralded the coming of Messiah. It was their right, their privilege to spiritually bring in, welcome Messiah to the world. But because they failed, and because this vineyard ended up drying up and producing no good grapes in the time, the Lord says, I'm going to let it be consumed. And ever since the fall of northern Israel, 722, and then the fall of Judah, 586, and then AD 70, the final destruction of Jerusalem, we have seen this exact prophecy come to place. The vineyard has been trampled. And Jesus said, indeed, it will be trampled underfoot. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles cease. So you've got the vine, which is the spiritual privileges of Israel. And there's many more passages in the Bible. You can go and kind of poke around and, and study that. Number two, the fig tree speaks of the national privileges of Israel. Their right to be a nation. And we're going to see these verses in a second. But Matthew 21, we see Jesus cursing a fig tree of all things. It's a bizarre little story. And he's walking along with the apostles. And suddenly he goes to pick a fig because he's hungry. It was the, the early figs. And there were no figs on the tree and he cursed it. And they went on their way and when they came back again, that tree was shriveled up. And Peter goes, look at the tree, Lord. He's freaked out. And the Lord says, yeah, it bore no fruit. And it will bear no fruit. And he was speaking of Israel. And the fact that Israel had was a nation, had their nationality, was given to them by God. A nation that they didn't, they didn't fight for themselves. Even as Joshua led the people in and we saw this, the Lord always went before them. And that verse we read before, that He gave them houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant and cisterns that they didn't fill. God gave this all to them. He gave them a national uh, heritage. And what's interesting is Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the parable of the fig tree. Remember he says when you see the fig tree blossoming you know that summer is near. And so when you see these other things taking place and he's talking about a lot of end times signs when you see them taking place it's like the blossoming of a fig tree and the generation that sees this happen will not die before all these things come to pass. And in that verse I believe Jesus is referring the fig tree referring to Israel. And the fig tree is an example, a picture of the national privileges of Israel. So the vine, the fig tree, and finally the olive tree, which speaks of the religious privileges of Israel. They're right as a royal priesthood, the original priesthood. And you Bible students remember this, that originally all of Israel were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. But when they fell there at Mount Sinai, and Levi stood up for the Lord... God said, okay, Levi is going to be the tribe of priests and Israel will no longer be a kingdom of priests like they were originally going to be. The religious privileges of Israel. And you can read this, Zechariah chapter 4, Romans chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. Look at those three passages and you can consider and think about the religious privileges, the rights of Israel that God gave them religiously as a priesthood. And study it out further. But there's more. There's more. For the rest of the trees in this parable, 
It's not just the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, the bramble, speaking of Abimelech, and I believe later also pointing to Antichrist, but the rest of the trees have a significant implication here. For the rest of the trees speak of the nations of the world. All the trees. Listen to these two verses. Matthew 24, verse 32. Jesus said, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he's near right at the door. But Luke gives us a different spin on this same teaching. Luke heard something or dug up something informationally or was reminded by the Holy Spirit to add a sentence into what Jesus said that Matthew doesn't tell us. Let me read it to you. Luke 21, 29. Jesus says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. It's not just the fig tree. It's all the trees. As soon as they put forth, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Now this this throws us into kind of a theological quandary. Because if the fig tree is Israel, literally Israel reborn, that blossoming of the fig tree showing us that summer is near, that the end is near, then why does Jesus say in Luke, why does Luke record that he says, and all the trees? Uh, are all the nations supposed to be reborn like Israel was reborn? Check this out. Fantastic book. I encourage you to pick it up. You can go online and get it at figtree.net or amazon.com. They have this book. It's by a man named Ray Rempt, R-E-M-P-T. The book is called A Season for All Time. Excellent book. In it, Rempt points out that in the space of two years, following the fall of the Soviet Union and communism in Eastern Europe from 1989 to 1991, in just two years, 15 former republics of the USSR declared their independence and became nations. All the trees. Seven Warsaw Pact countries also declared independence. All the trees. Five more countries of former Yugoslavia became individual nations as one. All told, 27 new nations blossomed within a decade in the 90s. And Jesus says, Behold the fig tree. 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. It begins to blossom. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. This, this, this resurgence of nations that we have never seen in the history of the world before this past century. All the trees, the nations of the world, gang, the trees are sprouting and more nations are sprouting, more are on the rise. And when Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, shouted out this parable from the top of Mount Gerizim, you've got to ask the question, did he have any clue what he was really saying? Could he possibly have known these things? And the answer is no way. But it's a significant prophecy nonetheless. It portrays with interesting precision exactly what the nations of the world will do. Rather than standing by Israel in this, in this uh, teaching, in this parable, they will appeal to the bramble, Antichrist. The nations will appeal. All the trees, they won't appeal to Israel. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine. They're going to they're gonna say, forget that. We're going after the bramble. We're going to align. We're going to make a covenant with the bramble. Just like the Shechemites and the people of Beth Milo made a covenant with Abimelech, so the nations of the world are going to make a covenant with Antichrist. They will sidle up to him. They will appeal to the bramble and they will be consumed by him. And that's called Armageddon. 
One last note on this parable for those of you interested in the timeline of Israel's history and the latter days. The, the trees, the three trees, are also eschatologically symbolic of Israel. Eschatologically. Eschatology just simply means study of the end times. Eschatology. So these are eschatologically symbolic. The vine tree gives us a picture of Israel's beginnings. Back when they were first made a nation, leading all the way up to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Again, see Isaiah chapter 5 for that one. The fig tree gives us a picture of, of Israel after Jesus, all the way up to the rapture of the church. What do you mean? When Jesus cursed the fig tree. When that fig tree withered. In fact, Luke 13 verse 6 Jesus began telling this parable. See if this sounds familiar. A man had a fig tree which he planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and it did not find any. He did not find any. So he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too. I will dig around it and I'll put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Well, the fig tree of Israel did not bear the fruit that the Lord called them to bear. And so the tree was cursed. And since the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension, since that time up until now, and all the way until the rapture of the church, Israel is that cursed fig tree. They are in that place. Oh, wonderfully, there are Jewish people who find Jesus as Messiah. In fact, sometime in here, I've got to show, I've got it on my iPod at home. There is a commercial that just ran, not a commercial, a, a newscast that just ran a few weeks back in Israel. Did you guys see it? Jonathan sent it to me. It's fascinating. Talking about the rapid growth of Messianic Jews in Israel. Jewish people coming to Christ, enclaves of them all over Israel that are popping up. Churches of Messianic Jews praying to Yeshua HaMashiach. It's wonderful. I've got to bring it in here and show it to you, but it's absolutely stunning what's happening. But the fig tree is under that curse. Matthew 21, Matthew 24, the generation that sees the fig tree blossom. 1948, that nation began again, and we're kind of seeing that go on now in Israel. And the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 11 says, Behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And it's a beautiful poem, but it's also a prophecy. As the fig fig tree begins to blossom and bear fruit again, the church, the beloved, is going to come along. It's going to be taken out. And then we get to Israel, the olive tree in this timeline. The olive tree restored. Israel restored in the millennial kingdom. That olive tree bearing oil. Bearing that pure olive oil. Romans 11.24 says, If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? That's Israel. Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That is the curse of the fig tree. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. That olive tree of Israel will once again bloom 
will be grafted back, the Jewish people, back into that tree in that time of the millennial kingdom. Now, we could go on and on about this, and there's so much more I'd like to tell you, but consider these things, chew on them, go back and look over them. And pray it through and study it through. By the way, it is interesting, in the parable back in Luke 13, of the man with the fig tree, that the fig tree was there for three years with no fruit on it. And Abimelech rules over Israel, verse 22 will tell us, for three years. And three years is just shy of halfway into the tribulation. And I'm sure there's got to be some connection there. We don't have time. I wish we could tonight, but we don't have time. So let's go on. Back to the story of Jotham's curse. He curses Abimelech and Shechem. He shouts down this parable curse from Mount Gerizim to the people below. And he says, in essence, Abimelech's going to burn you, Shechemites. And Shechemites, you're going to burn him too. Let's see what actually happened. Number three in our, in our larger outline, the conflict now. The conflict of Shechem, verse 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Hang on a second. You read that correctly. God sent an evil spirit. There's no getting around this one, gang. The Bible tells us in very clear lettering, God sent an evil spirit. Now this phrase is not unique in the Bible. The Lord sent a troubling spirit to Saul, 1 Samuel 16:14. The Lord sends a lying spirit to Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 23. And following, and the Lord sent a perverse spirit upon Egypt, Isaiah 19:14 tells us. The Lord did. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling us that God uses evil spirits? That the Lord would send a demonic presence? Doesn't that sound contrary to the very nature of God? He can't do evil. He can he? Is this possible? Well, the Bible tells us he did. At least four times. Probably more. And what it reminds us, gang, is that nothing can happen without the Lord's permission. Now process that for a minute. Nothing can happen without the Lord's permission. Nothing that occurs in our lives can happen unless God says, I'm going to allow it. Well, I can't agree with it. Again, that's contradictory to the Lord's nature. No, it just simply means that nothing can touch me without God knowing about it and God allowing it and God having a reason for it. This is, this is not Christianity 101, okay? This is like Christianity 701, okay? This is several years down into deep graduate level Christianity. But hear me on this. God will use whatever He needs to use to grow us in our lives, even bad things. He will use and it's something that as Christians we would do well to get our arms around that when things are going wrong in our lives instead of saying Lord rescue me from this we might pray Lord what are you teaching me in this what do you want me to know because of this what are you trying to show me how are you growing me through this this feels awful it hurts I don't like it this discipline it's unpleasant what are you doing Lord what are you trying to say here God's got a reason. And you might say, well, how do we really know demons can't act apart from God's permission? That they can't just go off on their own. Well, Job chapter 1, verse 12. Job chapter 2, verse 6. Check those verses out. 
tells us that Satan goes before the Lord and the Lord has to give Satan permission to go after Job. And Job's life falls apart. It's a picture of exactly what I'm saying. God gives permission for the bad to happen. For Satan himself, the most evil of the demons, for Satan himself to go after Job and to take everything away from him except his own life. God allowed it. He gave permission to Satan to do this. And I consider this to be great news. Because it means the enemy is at work, but the Lord has allowed it and permitted it for his own purposes. Satan plays right into God's hand. And the Bible tells us very clearly, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It may be a bad thing, but God will bring it about for good. It may seem evil at the time, but God, if you are a servant, a child of Christ, He can bring that around and use it for His purpose, for His goodness. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So the Lord can utilize even the evil intent of Satan. Even the demonic realm, God can use them against themselves to bring about good. The Lord does not, does not lead us into temptation. The Lord does not draw us into evil, but He can use evil to bring about good. That's amazing to me. But it just reminds me that God is sovereign. He truly is overall. Verse 24, reading on. So it says, The violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So this is exactly it. Verse 24 explaining why in verse 23 God sent an evil spirit. He sent the evil spirit so the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal would happen to Abimelech and the men of Shechem. He is paying back. He will bring back on their own heads exactly what they did. That's why he sends this evil, this divisive spirit in between them. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, does that mean that the, that the end justifies the means? No, it just means that the end, or in the end, all God's will is going to be proven just and right. I've shared this before. Let me say it one more time. Psalm 19.9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. And that's the song that you and I sing before the Lord. That's us singing in Revelation 19. And we will know and we will declare and we will sing out, He was right. He was right. And His judgments true. And His decisions perfectly just. Oh, how awesome is the Lord our God. We are going to praise Him when we finally get to the other side of the fence, to the other side where heaven is, and understand finally what it is that He's been doing. We're going to praise Him for it. We're going on in verse 25. So it says, The men of Shechem set men in ambush against Abimelech on the tops of the mountains. And they robbed all who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Abimelech. So the Shechemites now are they're laying in wait to nail Abimelech when he comes by. Now, verse 26, Gaal, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. So we have a new character in the story, Gaal. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And when they went into the house of their god, they ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. They got bombed. 
Basically what happened? They went out and they made good wine and they drank it and drank it and drank it and they started just to roll around and have a good time cursing Abimelech who they had set up as their own king. And it says in verse 28, Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would therefore that this people were under my authority. Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, now Abimelech's not even there, but he's speaking as if he was, because he's, he's drunk off his teacher, and he says, Increase your army and come out. Well, when Zebul, the leader or the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. So Zebul, who's a Shechemite, is on Abimelech's side. And he hears this guy going off and he sees these guys in this drunken stupor and hears this, this uh, you know, mutiny about to take place. So he sent messengers, verse 31, to Abimelech deceitfully. And that word deceitfully might also just be in Torma. Torma may be a place. Torma means deceit. So we don't know if he sent a deceitful message or if he just sent it to the place called deceit. It's kind of like the Deception Pass Bridge. It would be the Torma Bridge over here. So it says he sent messengers to Abimelech in Torma or deceitfully saying, Behold, Gaul the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem. And behold, they're stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, arise by night, you and all the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you can do to them whatever you can. So verse 34, Abimelech and all the people who were with him arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. This is interesting to me because this is exactly the strategy of his father Gideon. Now, he doesn't have the heart of Gideon, but he's using the strategy, the war strategy of Gideon, setting up companies all around in different places to attack from different angles. It's, it's actually a pretty smart strategy here. But going on, it says, Now, Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood by the entrance of the city gate, and Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, this will be at a distance, he said to Zebul, Look! People are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, Ah, you're seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. Gaal looks again and spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land. And one company comes by way of the diviner's oak. And then Zebul said to him, Where is your boasting now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So Zebul, the leader of the city, is there with Gaal, and Gaal sees them attacking, and Zebul says, hey, now's your chance. You want to take on Abimelech? Go to it. Go get him. So Gaal, verse 39, went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him. Remember, these are the guys who had the covenant together. You know, Baal Barit, Lord of the Covenant. Well, now the covenant is broken. It's violated. Shechem's against Abimelech. Abimelech is against Shechem. They're all fighting tooth and nail, which is exactly what's going to happen at Armageddon. And it says that Abimelech chased him, verse 40, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Aruma, but Zebul drove out Gaal and all his relatives so they could not remain in Shechem. Now, it came about on the next day 
that the people went out to the field and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies. Again, Gideon's strategy. And lay in wait in the field. And when he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he arose again against them and he slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And two other companies then dashed against all who were in the field and they slew them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. He burned them. He did exactly what Jotham said in the parable about the bramble that would burn them. And they did end up burned. Interesting, you raised the city, you sowed it with salt. This is exactly what the emperor Hadrian did in 135 AD to all the land of Israel. Because when you lay salt into the land, it makes it uh, uncultivable or cultivatable. You can't grow anything on it. Because the salt literally burns the ground. And that's what Abimelech does here in Shechem. He, he sows it with salt. He fries the city out. And so, going on here, more burning is yet to come. Verse 46, When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of el Elbarit, God of the Covenant. It was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went out, went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the people who were with him, What you see me do, hurry and do likewise. So all the people cut down, each one his branch, and followed Abimelech and put them in the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women he burned them alive just as Jotham said in the parable the bramble's going to burn you and you're going to burn the bramble well we see the bramble now burns the people he cuts down the trees he salts the land exactly as happened to Israel And again, Abimelech is a picture of what Antichrist will do. He's on this destructive rampage. His ambition has overtaken him. And now we get to the fourth part of our outline, the crushing of Abimelech. Shechem is burned. Shechem is wiped out by the bramble. Now the bramble gets crushed. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Tebetz, and he camped against Tebetz and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city. And all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. So he's going to do the same thing here that he did back in Shechem. He's going to do it here in Tebetz. And it says in verse 53, and I love this, but a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. The woman up at the top of the tower, and she had an upper millstone. This would have been a, would have been a small, probably eight to ten inch stone, smooth on one end, and it's what they would use to grind out the wheat or to grind out the grain in the mill in the kitchen. And she had this kitchen utensil and just went, <laughs> chucked it at him. Bamo, right in the top of his head, crushes his skull. And verse 54 says, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so it will not be said of me a woman slew him. (laughs) I don't want this getting out. Well, it got out anyway. We just read about it. So the young man pierced him through, and Abimelech, he died. And when the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home or his place. 
And thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his seventy brothers. And also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. Abimelech was an ambitious man. He wanted to get ahead. But it all came down on his own head, literally. It came back around and it nailed him. Exactly what he did is what happened to him. The men of Shechem, they received on their own heads the very evil that they had devised. And uh, ambition, let me just end with this thought, gang. Ambition like that of Abimelech's. Ambition always leaves people aching and burned. Gives you a headache. It wears you out. It wipes you out. Abimelech learned this the hard way and it cost him dearly. Now the story of this so-called judge has many interesting applications. Some we've looked at historically and prophetically and personally. But I want to end with this question biblically. Was Abimelech really a judge? Obviously he was a usurper. He grabbed Shechem and by the power of the Shechemites and the men of Beth Milo he set himself up as a judge, as a ruler, as a king over Israel. But was he actually a judge? Because everybody else in all of this list, in the 13 judges we have read and studied several so far and there are more to come, in this whole list of the judges, Bible scholars are mixed. Some put Abimelech in the list. Others don't. Spencer wouldn't. But some do and some don't. So the question remains, was Abimelech truly a judge? Well, verse 22 does tell us he ruled over Israel for three years. Short time, but he ruled over Israel. Daniel 4.17 says the following, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it even the most base of men the lowliest of men. Look back at the rulers across history. What Daniel tells us, actually it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking there in Daniel 4.17, what Nebuchadnezzar says is God Most High, He is the one who sets up and deposes rulers and kings. Oh, well that's Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Paul said the same thing. Romans 13 verse 1, There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So then was Abimelech really a judge? And I would say, yes. And the reason I would say yes for three short years is because the Lord gave the people exactly what they wanted. He gave them Abimelech as a ruler. In the same way he can use the demonic, the evil, the spirit realm for his good purposes, he uses mankind for his good purposes. He can use rulers. Can you even imagine Paul in Romans 13 saying this to the people of the church in Rome at the time of Caesar Nero? How would you have taken that if you were a Christian whose mother or sister or brother had been burned alive, dipped in hot wax, and hung in the gardens of Nero and set on fire and burned alive? And you get a letter from Paul saying, oh, and by the way, if someone's ruling, God put them there. Excuse me? Caesar? Nero? No way. No, no, that's evil. There's no way God could have put a lot. Gang, there's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So if Abimelech was really a judge, and I believe that he belongs in the list. And the reason I do, the reason I say this is because God allows it for this end. The people get what they deserve. 
they get what they ask for. They will have it happen again. They will cry out after the book of Judges is over and Ruth and we get into 1 Samuel that people will say, please give us a king. Oh, please give us a king. And so God goes, I'll give you a king. And he gives them Saul. And it's a bad situation. And then he raises up David and that's good and Solomon, that's, that's alright. And then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then he raises up Josiah, which is a good thing. But then it's bad, 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 bad again. Because God will often give us exactly what we cry out for, even if it's not good for us, so that we will learn from it. Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And the people of Israel, gang, they were sowing the seeds of Abimelech's rule. They deserved what they got. The fig tree was not producing fruit. The vine was not producing grapes. The olive tree was not producing that pure oil. And so God says, all right, I'll give you what you're asking for so that you might learn through this process. And I end with this question for us. What are we sowing? What are we sowing? Are you sowing the seeds of joy as from the vine? Is there the fruit of the Spirit sown into our lives like the fruitful seeds of the fig tree? Are we sowing the seeds of the Spirit Himself like those of the olive tree? What are we sowing? Because what we sow, we will reap. And is it your ambition to rule over man or to serve under the Lord? Father, would you take hold of our ambitions and make us only ambitious to be servants? Would you, Lord, oh, Father, take control of our lives that what comes out, that what we sow, the seeds that we sow in our lives would produce the fruit of the Spirit. And we know this is a tall order because we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit in and of ourselves. Only your Holy Spirit residing within us, living in us, empowering us, and working to your end through us, Father. Only your Spirit can sow seeds of the Spirit that will bring about this fruit. But this is what we're praying for and asking for. Holy Spirit, come upon us and may your fruit be seen in us and be sown among us. As we speak the name of Jesus in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.